So, part two of Lucian's uh, talks for today um, on machines, machine technologies, which is a big, it's a big, high, high, uh, well, first talk titles, so I think there's a coming range of the years. Okay, so, um, now machines, you know, machines are very, are very, very lousy actually in, in, in writing uh, poetry or composing music or to say, but they're really good in two things, okay? First thing they're really good at is uh, doing jobs which are really boring, okay? Just repetitive stuff, like the, the metering stuff. You know, there's a company every month coming to my home and asking me to fill in manually the amount of gas, electricity, water I've consumed. It really bugs me. This is boring for them, it's boring for me. So, you know, that's something machines could do. Now, the other thing which machines are really good at and better than humans is when it comes to critical things. A lot of information coming in, a lot of stuff, critical decisions to be taken based on an enormous volume of data and, and, and operating conditions. And often these decisions need to be taken within, you know, milliseconds. Now, humans um, just can't do that. So machines are very good in that. So that's the operating space of this type of machine-to-machine -machine communication. Stuff which is boring, repetitive, stuff which is really critical and needs to be done uh, on a certain deadline. Even though there's a lot of machine in the title, okay, it's actually all about humans in the end of the day. So we, let's not forget about this. And it's not part of my talk today, but typically I talk also a little bit about human computer interfaces, etc. So we're not going to talk about this today, but in general, don't forget it. It's really about the humans, whether it is in the health system, trying to help the humans to, uh, you know, to, to have a better living by monitoring your pl blood pressure, sugar levels, whatever, 24-7. Whether it is, uh, you know, parking sensors we do with my company who is uh, allowing you to find a parking space more, more efficiently. Whether it's the metering data, etc etc it's a large amount of data we we, we actually accumulate uh, using sensors we're doing something we're processing it bring it back we're acting on it we're calling the gp we're calling an emergency we are we are we are we are, we are visualizing you the pocket information in the end it's all about us it's also about real-time big data so they call this really literally the, the oil of the 21st century. Let's see how this plays out. And uh, uh, in fact, a company like IBM, Cisco, SAP, etc., many of those actually having their seats in Ireland, they, they put all their bets on this big data stuff. So they hope that they generate a lot of information, information which maybe has nothing to do with each other. So IBM is accumulating data from, from my parking sensors, from traffic information, weather information, football information, put it all together and gets out some really interesting um, predictions and uh, you know, advises to you as a human what to do. So it's all about this big data which is uh, now taking critical mass in the, in the uh, research but also in the uh, industrial community. It's also about opportunities. Machine to machine is about opportunities and I love that graph from General Electric. It's actually just a few weeks old. It's called the power of 1%. So using you know, automated systems, sensors which measure something, actuators which do something, and all that without anybody actually, no human being in the chain, this is really a machine talking to a machine, taking a decision, etc. If you just improve the operations of different verticals, be it, you know, the transportation, the healthcare, the power and the oil and gas sectors, by 1%, these are the returns you get. 
So it's an enormous amount of money. Uh, literally, it's a very big opportunity. And they call it the power 1%. And often, you can do better than just 1% by using really cutting-edge technologies. Now, how does it work today, all this machine-to-machine -machine business? It is... Um, it's actually like in the oil and gas business. So you have an upstream, you have a processing, you have a downstream. Okay? So the upstream means you're collecting data in the field by means of sensors. Okay? So these sensors take data, they measure things, they measure blood pressure, temperature, etc., etc., and uh, they, they relay it you know, wirelessly, often wirelessly. Not only, I'll talk about this a little bit later on, so this one is dying, I'm afraid, until it goes to a gateway. And from the gateway, it goes into the actual, you know, servers, the processing centers, where you would store the data, you would file it, you would categorize it, you would do a lot of things with that data. And uh, once you have it actually up there, you would put some intelligence on that, you would try to analyze the data, try to put sense on that, correlate it, build statistics, etc., etc. Uh, you know, try to make sense of the data, you bring it down to the people again. So on the downstream, you bring it to the mobile phone, to the, to the actual smartphone application, you bring it on the screen, you bring it to another actuator to do something. An example which my company has done is so we're instrumenting tunnels, so we put sensors in tunnels, we're measuring, we're measuring a lot of different tunnel information, like the uh, torsion, the pressure in the tunnel, and uh, by legislation, you have to have sensors every 50 meters. There are 12 types of sensors every 50 meters in a tunnel. You don't notice it because you drive through, you don't know, but you know, the, the, those who build the bloody thing, they know that you have sensors there. Now, they used to have them cabled, which is a big pain and actually in the operations rolling out, we made the wireless solution. So, and how do we, how do we actually, you know, you, the data goes into the processing center, that data is being processed, you realize there's a problem building up, and then we get it down to the actuator, which is a tra red traffic light, or it's just a barrier which goes down and says, hey, the tunnel is closed, there's a problem building up there. So these are the type of systems we're talking about. We're talking about systems which have no human intervention. There's one machine doing something, another machine taking decision, and then you're actually actuating on that with yet another machine. The other, they don't necessarily have to be small sensors. This is what the example I'm giving you. Okay? It might be also the toilet flush is a very typical machine-to-machine -machine system. You know, the moment you go away from the automated toilet flush, the moment you go away from the, sen from the sensor which measures distance, it would actually uh, um, actuate another, another machine, which is your, your flush, actually, which flushes down the water. So these type of systems with no human interaction is really, really what it is all about. Now, what we see in terms of the data processing uh, we're talking these days about the big data analytics. And the big data analytics is accumulating data from very different uh, streams, really. There's a machine-to-machine -machine stream, which we'll be talking about today, but it's not the only one. So it's not only the type of sensors uh, measuring things, or actuators, toilet flush, uh, coke machines, whatever, whatever, you know. This is not the only thing. You also have human-to-machine, so crowdsourcing. We talked about this a little bit over lunch. There's a lot of data coming in here. This data, the crowdsource data, is very different from the machine-to-machine -machine data because it's data which is not certified, it's not reliable. And, uh, but what you're trying to do here is you're trying to compensate uh, quality, the poor quality from crowdsourced sensing uh, with quantity. Okay? There's a nice trade-off, I'm sure you can you know, sort it out from a mathematical point of view, but I'm just saying that the, the, you know, the underlying principles of crowdsourced data is very different from machine-to-machine -machine data. But then there's also another type of data around, which is just simply data generated in the internet or anywhere you can find it, okay? Just sports data, people blogging, 
Twitter data, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, that type of data is floating around and it's quite important actually. So you find a company like IBM, which runs big data analytics with their Cognos type of uh, you know, platforms, I'm not sure you're familiar with that, and they take very different data. And literally, uh, what they take is, I give you the example I'm very familiar with, machine-to-machine uh, -machine data. So they take data from, from my company on the parking occupancy, from another company on the traffic flow, from yet another company on the actual travel time you need in the city, from the internet they take the weather information, from the internet they take the uh, football event information, from the crowdsource data they take uh, the, the, the general occupancy of the city, the flow, etc. They take data from Twitter, from Facebook, etc. and suddenly put it all together, they get a real-time picture of what's happening in the city. Okay? They know, hey, today Barca is playing, so weather's bad, everybody will take, a, will take their car. Um, you know, based on this type of past observations, we know that that part of the city will be completely blocked. So they start engineering the traffic lights, they start engineering um, the parking places, etc., etc. So just having this information, this feedback in 24-7 machine-to-machine, uh, human-to-machine, information-to-machine data, you suddenly start engineering the vertical you're in, and IBM does that very aggressively with the city space. Okay, I'm, I'm sure you know, you're in touch with the IBM guys here, with, with Paul, who's very active on this type of space. They're doing that. They're, they're literally going down to actually passing Twitter feeds, so they know if somebody is not happy on a, on a bus, okay, there's a bus delayed, etc. They would know immediately. They don't even need a sense on the, on the, on the because they're just reading what people are saying. So, you know, this mix of machine data, which is objective data, human data, which is subjective data, etc., gives you a complete different story of the city. Nobody would have thought about this, and this is what all this big data analytics is all about. Now, it's pretty tough to do that, though. Particularly, you know, when it comes to machine-to-machine -to -machine data. Why? Because no human is involved. That's a real challenge. No human involved means, you know, there's nobody who tunes the system once it's up and running. There's nobody there who can do that. There's no way that you can roll out uh, millions and millions of uh, machines, of sensors, of actuators. If you have to go down, you have to configure every single one of them. You have to troubleshoot every one of them. You have to maintain every one. There's no way. So it's like literally the first time ever we're building a system, large scale, where actually, you know, the engineer, the human engineer is out of the loop. This is really a system which has, has to run 24-7 on its own with no human intervention or the minimum of that, okay? It's very different from mobile phones, okay? Because when you have a trouble with that thing, you call out, you call Apple or whatever, whoever, you know, the, your service provider. You, these machines can't do them, can't do that, okay? You have them in the street somewhere and uh, it has to run. Um, so here you go, it's pretty tough and we're going to look a little bit today in how to do that and what are the challenges from the telecom perspective from the actual access point of view. So if you go to the technical point of the machine to machine, we break down the name, well there's no magic, you know we have machine to machine. So we have a machine on one end, we have the two part which is the networking part and we have the other machine on the other end. Uh, the important thing to us is, at least to my domain, is the two part, which is the networking part. So that's the one which I would like, to, uh, would like to talk about today a little bit. And if you look at the networking part, well, there's no magic actually. These are components you're very familiar with. So I'm exemplifying this by means of a uh, water meter. So you have one machine here, which is a meter. It is uh, using an access network, which could be, and I'm putting it up there, could be wired. Okay, so you take a wire and you just plug in your whatever your sensor you have. Um, it could be wireless, wireless short range, Zigbee type of systems. 
It could be wireless long-range cellular type of systems like the mobile phones are using. Okay? So once it gets to the gateway, it goes into the internet, it's being processed there, and uh, then it goes down again on the downstream wherever you need it to another actuator, whatever. So that's the composition, really. And if we look at the, the real challenge, the real challenge is in designing a good access network, okay? Because these machines, um, they want to be, you want to make sure that they read the data in a reliable manner 24-7 when you really need the data reading. So when it comes to the access network, we will observer we have observed in the past there are four different ways of doing it and I literally when I worked in France Telecom where I worked a lot in the metering space there were four different companies doing machine to machine for the metering exactly the way of, as I've shown it to you so the first company which has uh, proposed just simply a wired solution eh? yeah it's no problem with that okay everybody's obsessed with wireless but if it's really short-range type of thing or needs really to be reliable why is a choice you know you actually just what we had is every single meter was connected, uh, in this case with a propriety cable, could be an Ethernet cable, whatever, uh, goes to a gateway and to the gateway down here, goes to the DSL box, goes out of the house. So we got the meter, the, the readings very reliably. Another one was a hybrid solution, which was a capillary with a wired solution. So what it did is it had a Zigbee type of solution. Yeah, it was a Zigbee radio, which did a multi-hop between the, the radios until it got to a DSL box and went out into the internet to the utility company. Yet another company, Coronis, they had their own propriety multi-hop radio here, very low power, ultra low power design. It would go multi-hop until it reached an aggregating point, a gateway, which itself was a cellular modem. So they had actually, you know, a SIM card in the gateway and the gateway would fire the data via cellular interface to, uh, to, the, to the utility company, the water company, the gas or the electricity company. Now, what is coming though is this. I really love that. That's the future and there's so many challenges here. What will happen in the near future is that every single meter will have a SIM card. So every single water, electricity, gas meter, every single machine, every single sensor actuator, etc. will be uh, enabled with a cellular modem. Okay, so that's the future really. And I want to convince you today why this will happen and why all this Zigbee stuff and uh, will be something noise of the past very, very quickly. Okay, so that's, that's to talk about. Nonetheless, I want to talk to you a little, talk you through some of these technologies today so you, so you understand what it's all about. Now, if we trade essentially the pros and cons of the wired wireless, uh, short range, wireless, long range, we come up with that slide here. So wired solutions, they have their market space. Yeah, you know, we are, we are, as I said, you know, we are a wireless community, we, we, we forget very quickly, hey, you know, there's a whole market branch here, a whole vertical just doing, offering wired solutions. They will always be there because they're very reliable. If you have really critical stuff to be delivered, be it uh, on an oil plant or a gas plant, some, some machinery, some, some stuff which is really critical, you know, you cannot have a wireless interface. It's just not reliable. You want to have a cable. A cable, you only break the, the relationship, you know, the, between transmitter and receiver. You take the cable and you cut it. So in general, it's very reliable. That's, that's a good thing. On the other hand, it doesn't scale. There's no way we can scale to a 50 billion, uh, you know, node network as is being predicted by 2020 if we just go with cables. So that's the downside of it. And also, you know, when you come really to rolling out the kilometers and kilometers of cables, this is when wireless starts to be uh, really important. But the wired part, you know, there's a market. It will always be around 40%, has been 40% over the past years. It will remain 40%. And actually, if you look at the, the building regulations of the European Commission, you need, you know, every building which is being built in Europe needs to have an Ethernet connection every single room. 
Okay, so no matter where you are, um, no matter which room you are, whatever you need to, to measure, be it at home, in a factory, etc., etc., you're always a few steps away from an Ethernet cable. So if worst comes to worst, you just take a cable, an Ethernet cable from your sensor directly down to the plug and you have your machine-to-machine -machine system wired up and running. No problem, okay? Now, when it comes to the uh, wireless solutions, well, we have the two solutions. The, uh, let's say, the more traditional one, which everybody talks about when they think about wireless sensor networking, machine-to-machine -machine networking, which the industrial community calls a capillary network, capillary like kind of a short-range mesh type of thing. That's why it's called capillary network. We're talking about technologies like Zigbee, uh, Bluetooth. Um, I'll talk a little bit about wireless LAN later. Well, the beauty is it's, uh, it's generally cheap because you just buy a little chip, you know, and the technology itself is not all too expensive. Uh, you just set it up and it goes rolling, it collects your data, your sensing data and stuff like this. But it has a lot of troubles, okay, a lot of problems. Problem number one is maybe the range. Range means, you know, short range means if you really want to cover, let's say, this building here, you need multi-hop. So multi-hop, multi-hop is something, you know, which academics love because uh, multi-hop means a lot of degrees of freedom, mesh networking, routing, uh, you know, interference control and all this stuff. Now from an Industrial point of view, I'm, I'm afraid it really sucks, okay? So first thing I, I did as a CTO two years in my company is I just got rid of all this uh, Zigbee crap and I just went straight on the, on the cellular type of technologies, okay? Because it doesn't scale. There's no way. Uh, France Telecom, I was part of the team which has consciously abandoned actually the, uh, the Zigbee developments because we had a multi-hop network tested for the metering market and it just wouldn't deliver. You had sometimes to wait like, you know, two, three, five minutes for the data to come in. And it's all right for the metering, but it, when it comes to a critical type of stuff, you know, when you have to switch off an, a machine because something is going, you know, haywire or there's a fire going on or whatever, you can't wait two, three minutes. You can't do that. This has to come very quickly. So, you know, these type of systems, uh, the academic community loves it because, you know, you change a small parameter, it's a new system, new performance, your paper cannot be rejected because there's nothing wrong, okay? But uh, it has just absolutely zero impact, yes? So the problem becomes the rate too low. Imagine the delay, the high delay, because the physical rate is too low. No, it's not a question of the delay, so, uh, of the rate. The rate is not the problem. The problem is the interference, the, just the fact that you need to duty cycle the nodes because the only way you can make actually your Zigbee or any type of embedded system live for five years, ten years if you duty cycle it, meaning you switch off the hardware for 99% of the time and you have it on 1% of the time, okay? So now the problem is, of course, you have just 1% of the time where you can do all the business. All the business means you need to wake up, you need to listen if your neighbors have any data to transmit, uh, you need to generate and, and process your own data, you need to relay the data, you need to discover neighbors, etc. In this one short window which you wake up, you need to contend for the channel, uh, you often don't succeed. Okay, so you go back to sleep, you wake up again, and uh, you do the exercise five, ten times, and you do it on every hop. And once you have five hops, you immediately realize that this is the type of time. The target lifetime for these batteries. Yeah, it depends on the application. Okay, it depends even on the market. Okay, so for our smart parking application, for instance, you know, Spain would love to have between uh, five and ten years. Okay, um, Russia doesn't care. China wants it as short as possible. Ironically, because they want the people to be employed and change batteries and stuff like this, you know. So it really depends on the market. But, uh, you know, you have most applications, as I say, always between five, around five years, okay. So five years, 
on a Zigbee type of module with a, you know, a very kind of advanced current draw of about 10 milliampere on the three, three, uh, three to three volt uh, power supply, uh, voltage supply, means you need a duty cycle of about 0.2% to be a lot, to have a battery lifetime of five years on a, on a AA battery, okay? 0.2% means 99.8% of the time you're sleeping, 0.2% of the time you're waking up, okay? So Zigbee type of systems just don't manage that. So that is one of the reasons why this multi-hop stuff is not working out. And in fact, you will see that the trend right now is going from multi-hop right back to star topology, yeah? And uh, there's one little exception I'll talk, talk you through. Okay, when it comes to the wireless solution, the wireless cellular solution actually, you will observe that, well, you know, on the downside it's very expensive, okay? We know that we pay like uh, at least like 25 euros per month for my cellular subscription. So if you want to ramp up millions of nodes, this is going to be very expensive. So it seems like a very, uh, a very bad thing to do. However, uh, it turns out it has some ingredients which can really make it a very powerful technology, mainly because of the coverage reasons, the roaming reasons and the mobility reasons and actually of the whole ecosystem reasons. Okay? To build up the really scale technology you need a very strong ecosystem and the cellular technology has it. Uh, range is no problem because no matter where you are on this planet you have cellular coverage, right? Whether I'm in the basement, I'm on the roof, I'm uh, in the valley, I'm somewhere in the middle of Ireland, you will have um, cellular coverage. So it's there. Roaming is good. You know, you, my sense is if, I, if they work in, uh, in France, they will work in, 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 in the UK, they work in Ireland, they work in, in, in South America, it's there as well. Mobility is there. Handovers are supported. So cellular a priori is a very good solution for the problem we have. Okay, and I want to talk you through at the later second part of the talk actually about the pros and cons of these type of approaches. So just for you to bear in mind, you know, it's not a win-win, it's everybody has two sides. Now, machine to machine, where did it come from? It came out of the Nokia term, which was coined 2002. Um, you know, they, they brought out a development kit here and uh, people could, could start playing around with it. And it was really a cellular development kit. But it was actually a Swedish company called Maingate, which in 1998 started proposing using a cellular interface, which traditionally has been only uh, associated with mobile voice call for actually doing data calls. Okay, literally like machine to machine data calls. Uh, this is how it took off then and you know, it's now taking really kind of a very critical mass. We had the wired systems before, the control, the SCADA systems. On the capillary market, it was really probably Chris Piston in the 1990s who you know, took off with the concept of wire sensor networks. The hybrid systems, I introduced one, which Corona is a French company, uh, had, been, had been proposing and using for a few years. Now, when it comes to the novelty, and people always ask me about it, you know, I, I like to draw that, that graph here, which I think puts it out pretty well. So we have distance versus data rate. And if you look here, look, short range and short, a low rate is like Zigbee type of systems. So we have that in place. People work on that. Short range and high rate is Wi-Fi type of systems. So we have that. Now, high rate and long range is where the uh, mobile operator, LTE, LTA, etc., 3.5G, 4G is all coming in. And uh, then there was here, there was a gap here. So long range, low rate. That was real a gap here. And then this is where the, the true machine to machine business comes in. It means sending maybe just a single bit over a distance of 10, 30, uh, 100 kilometers, 
because a utility company needed it, be it in the metering market or the coke market as an example, the vending machine market. Vending machine market is a good example and if you look uh, very carefully at the vending machines you have around, you always see a small antenna there actually and that's the GSM modem antenna typically because the GSM vendor, uh, sorry, the, the vending machine operator would love to know, you know, how, how much coke is still left, you know, when I run out of coke, you know, send me an alarm, etc. This is what these type of systems do. But to send an alarm, it costs you a single bit, okay? Okay, you maybe want to encrypt it, so 16 byte, whatever. So we're talking about a data volume which is extraordinarily low. Extraordinarily low, uh, but there are loads of these machines. There are loads of vending machines, there are loads of other applications. So we're generating suddenly the bulk of data uh, just simply aggregating it across all these, uh, all these machines. But the single interface does not have to support a data rate of megabytes and megabytes per second. We're talking about a few bytes, a few bits per day. You can't even measure it per second, okay? So we need a different metric here actually to play around to get this sorted out. But that's the opportunity really. So this is the big opportunity. You have a cellular type of system which uh, gets me low rate over long distance. Now, to get things really out, technology really working in the space, you need standards. Unfortunately, this is what we have to do have today. Okay? It's a complete salad. You have thousands of different bodies pulling and pushing and trying and doing and this and that. And if you look exactly, it's not only standards here, it's actually also, there are also alliances here. So it's political kind of industrial pressure here. There's a lot of stuff going on here. And we're trying to make sense out of all this right now. There's capillary stuff, high, high data rate stuff, there are applications, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So, but it means the ecosystem is alive. There's a big industrial interest here of making this happen if you have so many standards and alliances out there uh, trying to, to make a machine-to-machine -machine system uh, working. Okay, so what I'll do now is after this short intro, I will go now first through the capillary machine-to-machine -machine technology. It's very short, actually, this part, because I don't believe in it too much. Um, and I'll spend a little bit more time on the, on the cellular part. Okay, so I think that's, that's the more interesting part. So when it comes to the uh, capillary short-range Zigbee Bluetooth type of systems, well, you can buy a lot of stuff off the shelf today. Okay, you just go to any shop. You buy Arduino platforms, whatever you want to buy, you know. So this stuff is very cheap, uh, small sensors, very simple to, to use, to program, to implement. Um, now they are facing a few challenges. I'll, I'll bring out two challenges. First challenge is interference. Interference is a big problem. Um, well, you know interference is a big problem, you're working on that. But just to, to illustrate this a little bit, so where could my embedded capillary systems work? It's in the 2.4 gig band in the 5 gig and the sub gigahertz bands. Okay, I'm bringing up two of them here. In fact, there are more of them. And China has a separate band around 700. So, but here we have 868. Uh, United States has 9, 915 and we have also the 433 uh, megahertz. What's happening is that this band here is uh, just so congested. It's just so incredibly congested. There's, it's a big trouble. So I have the problem at home that uh, you know, I can't even use my Wi-Fi at home, over three meters, because I see like 20 Wi-Fi stations at home, and everybody's using, you know, Wi-Fi like wildly, so I have literally an interference problem here. And, uh, and now imagine that if Wi-Fi is struggling, how would it be if you bring in Bluetooth and Zigbee and all these low-power solutions which actually transmit at the power, which is about 100 times less than what Wi-Fi does? You have a problem here, okay? You have a real interference problem. So companies, uh, 
kind of moved out of the 2.4 gig space where you actually have a lot of bandwidth, but it's very congested. You go down to the sub-gig space where you have uh, not so congested bands, but you have less bandwidth available, meaning less channels. Less channels means the moment more and more people start using these this sub-gap band, they will start interfering with each other again, okay? So therefore interference is a real problem. It's a real problem and particularly if you start trying to build a system which has to deliver data reliably 24-7 and with a delay which is guaranteed, whether it's 500 milliseconds or 50 milliseconds or 10 milliseconds or one minute but guaranteed. And uh, if you have interference which you cannot manage, you cannot control, then you get a statistical property in there, you know, you get some distribution. Maybe you can guarantee uh, in average, maybe you can guarantee the 80% quantile, but you cannot guarantee, you know, the, the, the amount you actually need to have critical in industry solutions there. So it's a problem. I'm not saying it's not unsolvable, it's a problem. The other problem is the lack of standards, which we had until recently, because it turns out whilst the internet is completely standardized, you know, it, you can have an IBM computer talk to a to, uh, to any a Mac computer, etc., simply because they speak a standardized language, which is the, uh, the IP language. Now, it turns out that, you know, in the embedded space, that was not the case. You had companies offering very different solutions here. Uh, Dustin was Coronas, Crossbow, Archrock, World Sensing My Company, SensiNode, a Finnish company, etc. So they would work, you know, until the gateway, everything is okay, but the gateway is already proprietary. So there's a proprietary gateway which talks into the sensor net of, of the specific company. It's a problem. It will not scale. The system will not scale simply because if you don't have a standardized solution, you know, you cannot possibly, a company like us or Coronis or Dust Network cannot cater for a market which is potentially 50 billion nodes big. So standards is a very, very big problem. Now, people have been working on this like crazy over the past five years, five, six years. Um, in France Telecom, we did it already, worked quite a lot on that. And we came out with a standardized protocol stack, which I think is, uh, is probably something which may stand a chance in the end. Okay, we'll see. Okay? So what happens is, if you look at uh, who standardizes what, the physical uh, until the Mac layer is standardized by IEEE and anything above that is actually the ITF who is taking care of that. Um, from the physical layer point of view, we said, okay, let's take the physical layers of the Zigbee stack. So it's not really Zigbee, but it's like the 802.15.4, edition. In fact, there are a few physical layers. There's just, just one physical layer. There's a few, few uh, embodiments of physical layer. They're okay. They're not like optimal, but they're good. They're workable. And they have proven their work. Okay, so the physical layer is good. Now, when it came to the medium access control, the... Uh, the 815 2006 uh, control had two medium access control, contention-based, non-contention-based, beacon, beacon control, non-beacon control. So they are, they are actually really lousy, one, one is the other, very bad, okay? It, it, it was okay in a star network, but because the range of these systems is very low, like in a cluttered environment would be like 10 meters, um, you know, line of sight people would claiming hundreds of meters, it's all rubbish. So if it comes to real operating conditions, like in this room, you have like a dozen meters to communicate with. So if you are able to put a gateway every dozens of meters, it's okay. But the moment you need a multi-hop network, this medium access control didn't work. So people started designing a new one, which is, uh, has been ratified actually August in 2011, so about a year and a half ago, and it's the 15.4E. It's a, I'm not going to talk about this much today, but it's, um, it's essentially a time frequency scheduled kind of MAC. So it means that the whole network gets to know um, when to wake up and at which frequency. 
Okay, so it means that uh, you know we don't need to contend for the channel. Uh, it means if I wake up and I have my data to transmit, I don't need to listen to the channel. Say, hey, is the channel free? Can I transmit? I transmit. There's a collision. There's a problem. I have to go back to sleep to wake up again, retransmit the problem. So we avoid that simply because we have a master controller who tells me, Misha, you wake up, you know, at this specific time at that specific frequency, and Doug, who is your receiver, will do the very same. So wake up at the same time, go back to sleep. It turns out that, you know, you need to control that. Uh, clearly, if you want to run a network of uh, 10,000 nodes, there's a bit of control involved. And if you do the maths, it turns out actually the overhead is very small. So the control overhead of keeping the schedule alive is very, very small. And um, so we built that system and we have actually designed the whole standard on that and it's workable. So you can buy a chip today and the chip is working. So we have, we have it in some of our products. We have that particular medium access control. So here you go. Okay, so we solved, uh, we used the physical layer, we solved the medium access control problem. Um, and then the next problem was how to get the data to the internet. It turns out that, you know, these type of Zigbee type of uh, packets are very short, 127 bytes. 127 bytes this is about 10 times shorter than a typical IP packet coming from the internet. So we, need to, we needed to adapt the IP packets coming from the internet into my sensor network and the, going the other way around. So ITF6 low pan had been created, which is an adaptation layer. It does nothing else but chopping down my packets from large packets into small packets, which could travel over my embedded network. It also compress uh, compresses the header because it turns out that the IPv6 header is occupying more than 10% of the packet of my embedded network. This is a lot of space. Okay, so IPv6, sorry, the 6LOPAN uh, is stipulating a compression mechanism which brings down the header into something which is much, much shorter than the original IPv6 header uh, you have in the core internet. Okay, so this is what it does. It does a few other functionalities, uh, security and neighborhood discovery, etc. But more or less, this is what it is doing. So, okay, so now we have adapted my network to the uh, IPv6 uh, language. The next problem was is how do I route the data? So you have a sensor network here, it's multi-hop, you need to route stuff. So the typical internet routing protocols wouldn't work. We have done a big study on that. It's just not efficient enough. So we set up a routing working group, uh, ITF Roll, which dealt with all the routing. And we came up with a very nice protocol called RPL today. And it's uh, a de facto standard today in the, in, in the routing over these embedded systems. Okay, so I will not dwell a lot on this either. I have a few slides, actually my tutorial slides, my machine-to-machine -machine tutorial slides from Globecom, we have it like really spelled out how it works. But uh, I didn't want to talk about this today for time reasons and also I'm not so sure it will survive, honestly. I just, I'm not sure anymore. So here you go. And another one then uh, is uh, once you have uh, sorted out the networking, the routing problem, uh, next thing is a transport protocol. So how do you ensure like the end-to-end -end connectivity, okay? So over wireless interfaces, we figured out that uh, using TCP type of uh, protocols is not a good idea because you lose a, you lose a packet and the, uh, the, the, the host is thinking that maybe there's a problem with congestion, with buffers, so it's increasing the windows and you, know, you get a lot of stuff uh, in the network happening simply because the, uh, the source is, uh, is just presuming that you know, packet loss is because of uh, buffer congestion, but actually it's because of a packet loss, etc. 
So people have been shunning away from TCP. They rather went into UDP type of protocols, so where you actually have, you know, it's, it's with no acknowledgement, you're just streaming the data, etc., hoping it would arrive. Um, in reality, though, there's a little trend now back to TCP. Why? Because from a transport layer point of view, we have designed now these layers, the networking, uh, the medium access control, and the physical layer, so, so well that it appears like a wire. Okay? So down here is something the hardware I didn't even tell you about. So if you buy, let's say, a Texas Instrument chip today, you can have two antennas. So you have a MIMO system down here. Okay? And the chip would do a very, uh, very quick probing on which of the two antennas is the best antenna to use. So you do a kind of transmit an, or receive antenna or transmit antenna selection, which asymptotically, as you know, be behaves like a MIMO system. So you have that hardware already the selection of a good channel. Physical layer is a very good physical layer. Medium access control, you got rid of all the congestion and the interference problems. Uh, you got the uh, routing protocol, which is very adaptive. So it almost like from, from above, it almost looks like a wire. So if it looks like a wire, hey, we could start using my old uh, uh, transport protocols like the TCP, which has been designed originally for wire type of systems. So uh, Adam Dunkels and all his group in, in Sweden, they started proposing this lightweight TCP, and it works. Okay, so it works because systems become really stable. And then now people start talking also at the application layer. So uh, ITF Core has created essentially a way of uh, representing your, your data at the application layer. So you don't have to type in, um, you know, H you, you can now type in, sorry, you can type in HTTP as, and exactly the same way as you open your browser. So you, you're just uh, opening an internet address. You would open your sensor. Okay, you would query the sensor exactly the same way as you query essentially uh, a website. Now this is, this is very powerful. It's very powerful because we're used to that. We have done that. Okay, we've built this internet for the past 15 years and we have engineers who have been, you know, trained to work on all these spaces and we've just designed you know a network which makes my embedded system look like a normal type of computer okay so the super computer center in Australia can talk to a small embedded sensor in Ireland this is what we achieved and that's very powerful it's very beautiful uh, per se I'll see how this community will scale now what is more interesting though which I think stands um, a pretty good chance is what is emerging in the past years, which is low-power Wi-Fi. So nobody thought about using Wi-Fi for sensors, ever, until a company called Osmo Devices came along about uh, three years, maybe four years ago, and said, hey, we build a, a camera where you can take a picture, and uh, this camera would automatically offload all the pictures you have into the internet. And uh, the, the radio interface we're using is Wi-Fi, and the battery you need is just a normal battery. You, you power your, your, your camera. So it's a AA battery, and it would live for years. And everybody was like, excuse me? So it turns out you can do it. Not only can you do it, actually, the dot .11 standard um, is uh, stipulating all this from, or is allowing all this from a standards point of view. So all, all the language we have been using in this community, like duty cycling, uh, power savings, etc., it has actually been part of the standard here all along. So, you know, it was just discovered by chance, it's doable, proof of concept, etc. So people start working on this. So there's an enormous big, enormously big ecosystem now uh, pushing for um, Wi-Fi systems to be used for these type of sensor applications. Now, why do I think it will work out? Uh, first of all, 
you know, it has, I think, four competitive advantages versus over the Zigbee type of systems. First advantage is, you know, we have an infrastructure rolled out already. The same way as with cellular, no matter where you go today, you have Wi-Fi. Okay, I switch on my, my mobile phone, I see, a, I saw two Wi-Fi stations here. I go uh, to Dublin, I go to my place, I have like 20 Wi-Fi stations. No matter where you are, you have Wi-Fi. It's kind of a technology which is ubiquitous. It's available all over the planet. So you don't have the problem of setting up a base station. How many Zigbee base stations do you see? Zero. None. Yeah? And in France, actually in France Telecom, we were selling a Zigbee dongle with the live box, which is the Wi-Fi box in, uh, for France Telecom, which you could plug in and you could serve all your Internet of Things space, etc. Uh, it was discontinued because nobody was buying it. Okay? So you have a problem here. Yeah? with the Zigbee stuff. But uh, Wi-Fi has really taken off. You have, the, you have actually the infrastructure up and running. Now, you have a very vibrant standard, more than 300 members, so it's critical mass. It's uh, very serious industries which are in the standard and really making things happen. You have a form of interference management. Okay, I'm not saying it's optimal. I'm not saying it's good. Uh, I know that you guys work on that. So it would be interesting to work really on the you know, interference type of management scheme for low-power Wi-Fi systems. I think there's a lot of potential there. But you have means of doing that. And you have security in place. We, we, you know, we have you know, very good tested security mechanisms for Wi-Fi in place. So for very critical machine-to-machine -machine data, that is something which could really play an important, important role. Altogether, what I'm trying to say here is, you know, even though Zigbee was kind of the, the choice for these type of sensor networks and everybody was excited about this and uh, multi-hop turned out to be a necessity but also blessing for the academic community, etc. It just lacks this critical mass for really rolling out as an industrial solution. Wi-Fi, we have it rolled out. Yeah, we have it. So you don't need to worry about coverage really anymore because you have Wi-Fi everywhere. You just need to worry uh, about the actual sensor being Wi-Fi enabled. And it turns out it's doable. There's no problem with doing that. So you, have, you can you reuse the same engineers. So the engineer which has installed you, the Wi-Fi system in your company, can be used to install your machine-to-machine -machine system. It's the same engineering skills. Okay? So you get a lot of operational advantages of using that. Now let's come to the power advantage. And that's a real shocker here. It turns out that Wi-Fi... Low-power Wi-Fi is more power-efficient than Zigbee. Now, this is really absurd, but this is what it is. So it turns out that if you want to transmit packets which are maybe not all too short, let's, let's say we're, we're talking about a packet of 1,000 bytes long, so a sensor has accumulated a log file um, of your metering data, whatever has occurred during the day, troubleshooting data, and it's sending out this data of 1,000 bytes uh, to, to my utility. And uh, if we compare Zigbee uh, standards enabled Zigbee 6 low pan versus the low power Wi-Fi. Um, you know, you look at the 1,000 uh, bytes packet length. The energy you need with 6 low pan is about 10 millijoule, and the one with low power Wi-Fi is about 1 millijoule. So the factor is 1 to 10. Turns out it's 10 times more efficient to send uh, data with low power Wi-Fi compared to Zigbee. So this is what it is, and. Um, People now start to work on that pretty frantically and big companies, I took out the ecosystem company uh, slide, but there are loads of companies who really work on this big time right now, Qualcomm, etc. So Qualcomm is trying to build it into their chips to really build the low power Wi-Fi chip. And I think this really stands a very good chance of becoming the de facto capillary system for machine to machine type of applications. So, uh, there's a lot of stuff to be done. It's a system we're familiar with uh, from an interference design point of view, throughput design point of view, but there are loads of unanswered questions when it comes to low power embodiment. How does it behave uh, in, uh, how does it coexist with the high power, with the real high data rate stuff, you know? 
So these type of things, I think, are completely open and uh, good for research. Now let me come to the, um, to the other technology which I really believe in, which is the cellular machine-to-machine -machine type of technology. Um, so what, when I say machine-to-machine -machine type of technology in the cellular sense, I really mean that sensors will be around which will have a cellular interface actually in, built in. Okay, so we're not talking about low-power Wi-Fi, we're not talking about Zigbee, we're really talking about cellular here. Okay? It doesn't mean they need to have a SIM card. We're moving away from the physical SIM card. The SIM card which is in here is already much smaller than the SIM card we used to have. There are industrial SIM cards which are even smaller and much more robust uh, than the one you have in an iPhone. But we're moving away from that altogether and we're moving towards a logical SIM card. And that's the only way which will make these systems scale. So when I say SIM card, I don't actually mean the physical card. I just mean you know, the concept of a cellular modem being in here. Now, why is cellular M2M so beautiful? Ubiquitous coverage. No matter where you go, you have cellular. You also have mobility and roaming supported. That's very important for many applications. You as a company don't have to worry anymore. Is the gateway in place? Is the gateway not in place? Who pays the power for the gateway, etc., etc.? It's a very important operational uh, problem the moment you start actually rolling out machine to machine. So you can solve that. Interference control. Well, that's something we have been doing as a community for the past 20 years. If we know something uh, really to do well is how to control interference, how to do scheduling, how to do radio resource management, um, we're trained to do that. So now it's just about adding a little bit more, which means servicing my 50 billion machines, which of course is a radio resource management challenge, but uh, we can do it because we're used to that. So we have a whole ecosystem, R&D, uh, innovation, etc., which can do that. Another thing which people like, uh, you know, tend to neglect actually is to really make things happen, you need critical mass, and particularly on the servicing side, okay? And I see that right now um, in the cities we go. Cities have traditionally worked with big service providers. As an example, in my, in one example is Telefonica. Telefonica is a very big service provider in cities in Spain and South America and they like to work with it because they provide them the whole IT infrastructure, the billing system, so the whole thing. Telefonica has a very powerful service platform, okay, and the city is used to using this platform. Now, you come as a company, a machine-to-machine -machine company, and you suddenly offer a new service to the city. Will the city buy a new platform just to make you know, sure you can, you can, uh, you can, the city can use your, your technology? They will not do it. They would love to continue Telefonica's platform, of course, with the additional capabilities of my technology. So therefore, you know, using these service providers, which have essentially taken out a lot of space already in the cities and other verticals, you just plug in new technology, you become compliant, Telefonica compliant, IBM, Cisco, Oracle, SAP compliant, and uh, suddenly you are in the market very quickly because the customers you talk to uh, is actually talking to somebody has been talking to for the past 10 years. So having these service platforms in place already is a very big, big plus for the cellular community. The Wi-Fi community doesn't have it. There is no Wi-Fi service uh, platform. There is no Zigbee service platform. There's a small company which has a platform to offer and it may seem very big, but compared to the global market, it's just really negligible. Whereas that is really nationwide. This is big stuff, AT&T, et cetera, et cetera. So I think, you know, all these factors together make it really attractive. Now, the only problem is, is that uh, you need a real mental shift for the mobile operators. They're not used to machine type of traffic. They're used to humans. They're used to you making a phone call, 
they're used to you downloading uh, files, etc., but that they're not used to uh, machines uploading small data bytes. They're not even used to the price plans. Not at all. So I have the problem in Spain for my company, you know, I was, I was going to Orange to Telefonica to, to Vodafone. So guys, you know, we're going to run out, uh, we're going to roll out a few thousand sensors and would love to make them cellular enabled. Now what's the deal? Uh, what's the best you can offer me? And they say, you know, Misha, we're going to give you a euro 50 per sensor per month, uh, but we're going to put you a data cap of 100 megabytes. So guys, look, I have parking traffic. There's like one bit being sent every half an hour. There's not even, you know, not in 100 years I'm going to use your 100 megabytes of data uh, cap. Give me, give me, you know, a good data plan for, uh, let's say, 10 kilobytes per day or per month and, uh, you know, loads of nodes. Actually, you know what? Just give it for free because uh, 1 euro 50 doesn't scale. Even down to 5 cents, it's difficult to justify. Just give it for free. Work on the data. I was always telling them, you know. Uh, become what you're really supposed to be, service providing, you know, work on the data. I'll give you the data, but you give me the interface for free. So it didn't work out, and uh, we actually went for a different cellular technology today. So Moscow is running on a cellular technology out of necessity as well. We couldn't install gateways. So even if we wanted to, we could not install a Zigbee type of gateways because Moscow doesn't have street lamps in the city center. Okay, it's very simple. So, and the very few street lamps which are there, uh, administered by a different department in the traffic department, so you can't make these talk together. So it becomes a very operational uh, problem. So, you know, not worrying about cellular coverage or, or gateway coverage is a beautiful thing. And that's why we went cellular, though we're using a different technology. So let me look at the, at the big advantages if you compare, you know, the, the cellular human type of traffic versus the machine type of traffic. You know, this, the human type of, in the end, we're not too many, like 200 users per base stations, etc. We tolerate delay and jitter, even for voice and data traffic. Uh, it's very small. You, you don't notice it, you know, but uh, 20, 100 millisecond delay jitter, no problem. Um, we like to download a lot, so a lot of bandwidth. We don't mind to recharge our mobile phones, they're very important. Because on my iPhone I need to charge it actually at least twice a day. At least twice a day. In fact, it's now so often connected that I can't call it wireless anymore. <laughs> it's kind of cabled all the time. So the iPhone is, uh, you know, the, the charging is part of our daily business. And we also raise alerts when there's a problem with the uh, security of the mobile phone. Now machines are very, they're actually exactly the, different, the, the opposite. There are a lot of machines. It's mainly uploading stuff. It's a lot of uploading of data. Uh, no high bandwidth, short packets, but altogether a lot of data, okay? There is uh, definitely no way you can, uh, you can charge them twice a day, so it has to run autonomously for a long time. We, we talked about this before. Then you need really a lot of automated security and trust mechanisms to make sure, you know, at least an alert is raised if the node is compromised. You want to know about it. Um, if you have millions of nodes, you know, and somebody steals a crucial part, you want to know about this. So the big question is, you know, can you do that without jeopardizing cellular services, without jeopardizing you talking on the phone, downloading data, etc.? Well, it's doable, but it re requires some engineering work, which is currently being carried out by various cellular machine-to-machine uh, -machine standards. Etsy is very active, so I'm, I've been very active in this one on, the, uh, on various components, so I'm part of the list. The list is very uh, extraordinarily active. A lot of players trying to standardize now the cellular M2M. Uh, 3GPP is waking up, okay? And IEEE has been doing something on the, on the WiMAX part, the .16P. So I'm not going to talk about this uh, further down the road. So I'm going to talk a little bit about Etsy and a little bit about 3GPP. Now, Etsy's vision is very simple. 
and I, I fully, I fully uh, concur with the vision is you have a device domain here, so we have loads of sensors in the field uh, communicating wireless radio. It goes to the networking domain, so you have some core networking stuff, and then it goes to the application domain. So if you look at the technology which are being used, we all know them. There's nothing new in a sense. Okay, so there's no, no magic I'm telling you here. From a device domain, connectivity point of view, you could have power line communication, Bluetooth, Zigbee, Wi-Fi, etc. Um, from a core network uh, connectivity point of view, you know, you have SC Tyspan, uh, NGN, and all that, at, uh, all that going. And from the application point of view, this is where you really make, uh, you know, the money. It's the smart energy stuff, the services you're offering, the applications, the, the health, the transportation, and all these uh, verticals. Okay. So what 3GPP on contrast is doing, so I'm skipping uh, a little bit of slides here on Etsy, so I'm moving straight to uh, uh, 3GPP. 3GPP is standardizing the whole cellular world, so 3G, you know, 4G, etc. is all being standardized by these boys, and they realize, and they have been uh, standardizing so far for very high data rate traffic, so everybody's looking like high data rate, you know, 4G, 5G, etc. And now it turns out we have to service a lot of machines with very low data rate. Is that possible? So they're starting to to standardize it, but they don't call it machine to machine, they're called MTC, machine type communication. So whenever you see MTC, this is free GPP language for machine to machine. And HTC is a human type of communication. Now they figured out that the applications are so different that you cannot come up possibly with a single standards type of system. Okay, so what they propose is that, hey, we will have a, a few features in the system and you will optimize according to these features. So uh, what will it look like uh, year 2020? You want to instrument um, your school, your home, your hospital, uh, your oil and gas plant with a machine-to-machine -machine solution. What you do is you go to a machine-to-machine -machine service provider and uh, they will give you a list with these uh, features here and you have to tick off what you need, okay? And accordingly, what you need, they will optimize and tweak the parameters of the system technically, but also from a service subscription point of view. I'll give you a few examples. Low mobility. So if you say my sensors don't move, then that means you can actually get rid, from a technical point of view, of all the handover procedure uh, overhead. Okay? So you don't need any more any type of protocoling in your system which takes care of the handovers or any form of roaming or anything. If you say, I'm going to be static in this region, no handover, okay? So you, you can get rid of a lot of control traffic here, save a lot of energy, etc., etc. Uh, time control, maybe you just want to uh, use them at a specific time of, time of the day. So let's say you're okay to just to use it at noon for one hour. So, you know, we can essentially liberate the system from the rest of the time. Time tolerant, can you wait for a few seconds, a minute? Um, mobile originated only, that's very important. It means it's only the sensor which says, I have data to transmit, and it's not the system saying, hey, do, do, what's the status of your system? It's very different from a, from a control traffic point of view, okay? Because you don't need any paging anymore. If you, don't need, uh, if you don't need to query the sensor, where are you, what you're doing, what's your data, etc., no paging necessary. You get rid of all the paging traffic. So it saves you again a lot of protocol overhead, etc., etc. So you see you're trading essentially a lot of uh, features here, and if you know a priori what your system will look like, you can optimize your system from an operational point of view and therefore also from a cost point of view. So this is what 3GPP now is standardizing, and they're looking into solutions for each of these features here, down to the actual addressing. Okay, because addressing is a big problem, because if we really have uh, 50 billion devices out there, my traditional addressing mechanisms wouldn't work anymore. 
because we have today, you know, an IMSI addressing, which is a few digits long. We're running out of the address in the first place. Now, adding another, you know, uh, another 50 billion devices will, will pose a big challenge in terms of uh, callability, identification. People, the obvious solution is to use IPv6 address as a, as a calling number, but the whole 3GP system is not set up of initiating call procedures with the IPv6 address, okay? So this was maybe one of the weaknesses of the whole design, they're currently implementing it, etc. But there are loads of challenges on how to address, how to find, uh, how, to, how, to, how to establish security, etc., etc. So I want to give you an example here. We worked on that quite a lot with my uh, colleague, uh, Kan Zheng, he's at BOPT in, um, in, in Beijing in China. He, we were colleagues at France Telecom before, so we continue working with each other. And... Um, the, the beauty with him is he has a big army of PhD students, about 100 PhD students, you know, that's a big advantage. I was telling you, you know, in Europe we have, uh, we have typically, you know, uh, 10 problems and one person, and in Beijing you have, you know, one problem and 10 people to solve the problem. So he has a big army actually helping with the, with the research. He has very good people, really. So we start working on an architecture here for machine type of communication. How can you meaningfully put... Uh, loads of machines, loads of sensors in the system without jeopardizing essentially a human type of traffic. Okay, so we built up the architecture and we came up with different scenarios, direct communication, wire gateway kind of relay system here, but the, the gateway is actually fixed. Or the device-to-device -device communication, so the MTC to MTC type of communication. And uh, we started looking on how to actually do the scheduling and the time and the frequency domain, so we worked aggressively on the of DM type of system, so it's really an LTEA, LTLTA system. And, um, you know, we came up with, a, I think, with a really, really nice type of scheduling algorithms, and we started simulating it. And the reason why I wanted him to simulate this is really because the operators in, uh, in Europe were saying, you know, it's a big trouble the moment you start scaling up with the numbers of machines going from 10 to 100 to 1,000 to 10,000 to 100,000, you will see a very strong impact on the on on the actual services of the traditional cells, uh, traditional network operating business like the voice calls, the data calls, etc. So we started looking into this, and we um, we we did you know based on some assumptions of the network here, you know we we assumed there are hundred humans calling with certain distribution, certain uh, you know means and arrival rates, and there are machines uh, calling in also according to arrival rates and 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 uh, distribution. But we scaled up from 100 machines to 100,000 machines and wanted to see how does it scale. And we distinguished two methods. We distinguished the uh, method where we always give priority to the humans. Okay, and the other method where we always give priority to the machines. And we looked at the outages, we looked at a lot of stuff, but uh, let me just look, uh, show you one single graph, which is the dropping probability versus the numbers of machines you start ramping up in the system, going from 100 to uh, 100,000. Now, what you see here, the squared one is a human type of traffic, okay, so which is down here, one line, and another one's uh, growing exponentially here. So this is clearly bad news because if your outage goes up, that's very bad. But what we observe is, you know, with my uh, method number one, when I always give priority to the humans, and no matter how many machines you start switching on in the system, it turns out that my outage is barely affected by the number of machines, which is good news. It just showed us, you know, if you choose the right priority mechanisms, and we didn't even ask the question whether this is optimal, or good, or whatever. We just took two real extremes. There was nothing in terms of optimality or whatever. We just said, 
in this method, we always give the priority to the humans, so outage is naturally very low. And in this method, we give priority to the machines, so outage is very, very large. So we know we can't do that. We should do that. On the other hand, how did the, how did the machines, how did the outage of the machine behave? It turns out if you give uh, priority always to the, uh, to the humans, then clearly my outage is a little bit higher. Okay, but uh, not so much. It's a very little influence, really. And uh, so it turns out, you know, the best strategy, uh, according, you know, to the simulation scenarios we found is, you know, just give priority to the humans, and you can ramp up as many machines as you want. Mm, you know, the impact of, in terms of outage between the machines will be low, but the humans will be served in a really satisfactory way. Okay, so we have a lot of... Uh, more results really on the machine-to-machine -machine type of stuff and there are a lot of challenges from a scheduling uh, optimality point of view. I think device-to-device -device is an interesting area to look at, etc. Overlay networks, etc., etc. So, yes. Before. So yeah, one of the tasks on the machine connected to one cell, mm -hmm. mm -hmm. So this is really being served by one cell. But not simultaneously, clearly. Okay, so we duty cycled them. I didn't show the duty cycle graph here. The duty cycling was uh, 0 0.00, I don't know, almost 100%, uh, almost zero. Meaning they were sleeping almost all the time and just woke up to do their business. And we could do that because, you know, we assumed an average arrival rate, I think I showed you this slide, for 30 minutes. I actually wanted him to simulate exactly my parking case, okay? So a parking event takes place an average every half an hour. People, you know, it it's looks very dramatic, but the average is really, you know, people come, park, car stays for half an hour, and then they leave. So I wanted something to show to the operators, you know, if a sensor just wakes up every half an hour, sends a message saying, hey, a car parked or my car left, and then goes back to sleep, then you can essentially ramp up up to 100,000 sensor networks, uh, nodes without any problem. That was the whole, the whole idea of this study, yeah? Whereas with the Zigbee type of systems, you can't do it. They have to wake up every, uh, every few milliseconds because you don't know whether your neighbor had a uh, car event. And uh, if, if your neighbor had a car event, then you need to relay that data. So you need always to wake up to listen, hey, is my neighbor something to do? With the one-hop centralized systems, you don't have that system problem at all. You just do your business when you have to do it. That's it. Okay. So here you go. So from a technical point of view, we have many more results, but I just wanted to show you that you really can accommodate this large amount of uh, sensors. So let me just do very quickly a little bit on the business part, and then we call it a day. So the, um, the return of investment of using machine-to-machine -machine type of systems, it's really the real-time instrumentation. So that is a slide I got from General Electric as well as just the fact that you get data 24-7 and very reliably uh, in and you work on the data gives you a lot of value. Okay, so you can work on that. So this real-time instrumentation is something only machine-to-machine -machine can do and gives you a lot of return of investment. Another one is what I call the big data value, and we talked about this a little bit. So the value you generate in general uh, grows, you know, factorial with the type of data you generate from different sectors. In fact, very little has been, uh, you know, done on this or the quantification done on this, but you understand, I gave you the example before that, you know, IBM is collecting data from the weather forecast, football information and traffic information, all three together, suddenly you can start engineering the uh, traffic behavior of your city, okay? So it has an enormous value here. This is a very big value. If you just had the weather information, would be nothing. If you just had the traffic information, nothing. Just, you know, so you need it all together. The more you put together in the pot, and it's really data which is very different, so it's cross-domain data, uh, the value of that goes up 
uh, in a factorial way. So that's a big data value. That's another return of investment. And uh, a third one is clearly going wireless. You know, if you go wireless, you save a lot of money. So as we see over time, you know, the computational components gets cheaper. The silicon gets cheaper. The sensors get cheaper. Uh, the only thing which is really getting more expensive is the installation, the maintenance, the cost of the cable. So copper is very expensive. Uh, the price of copper is going up. Uh, it doesn't have any impact if you have to wire something over a few centimeters, but the moment you need to wire kilometers and kilometers of cables, you understand that going wireless is an enormous cost saving, up to 90%, okay? From an, uh, a CAPEX point of view, but also from an OPEX point of view, because it's much easier to install, to maintain, etc., etc. So that's a third return of investment, which is giving a lot of advantages. So therefore, you've got a lot of really popular markets here, like the building automation, smart city, telemetry. This is where traditionally it's very strong. Industrial automation, the smart grid market, etc. So there's a lot of stuff going on right now with the real-time instrumentation with the machine-to-machine -machine solutions. So I'm going to uh, just show you maybe very quickly, because you work on traffic, um, the smart city control platform. So this is our platform, actually. So we take data from very different verticals, okay? So we take smart parking data, which is our own company, traffic flow data, which is a joint venture between our company and a construction company, uh, travel time information from BitCarrier, which is a good partner from us, smart bins with UK company, um, critical infrastructure from, uh, from other data, we have some vibrating stuff, which is more for, uh, you know, seismic type of activities. You put it all together and suddenly you get a, the, the town hall gets a real-time idea of what's happening in the city. Okay? They use it today only for monitoring things, so they're not using it for engineering things. But you could use at least that column here, you know, the, the, the traffic side, you could actually use it to optimize the traffic flows in the city by influencing the traffic lights, etc., etc. So that's one thing you could do. You, the smart bins company went in touch with them because they, of course, uh, the pickup route of the, uh, what are they doing? They're putting sensors into the, onto the bins. Okay? and uh, you would essentially optimize the pickup times. So currently it's scheduled every Monday, every Thursday, twice a day, once a day. But sometimes they fill up quicker, sometimes they don't fill up so quickly. So why should you go uh, more often or less often than you actually would go? So these sensors tell them how to do it, but of course that's only the end point. So we told them, hey, why don't you also optimize the actual route? your truck travels based on the traffic time estimation, you know? So these type of things, you put it all together and suddenly you, you can optimize the pickup time and, and all these things. So here we have rolled out in Moscow, I want to just, this is the port we did, uh, just want to go on. Maybe just one single slide on the, on the grid. Um, yeah, just that one here. So the smart grid has really taken off. Um, I'm not sure you guys are working on the smart grid uh, now. So just a single slide, really. So the power transportation is very similar to a broadcast system, or until today, where you have power flowing, you know, it's being generated, going through the transportation network, go to the first substation, uh, down converted to uh, 115 kilovolts, going to the next substation, down converted to something which, you know, the buildings can take, and then you distribute it to the buildings. So you need to instrument all, all along the way, actually, because a lot of things can happen. So, for instance, the transmission network, you see the... Uh, the, the, power, the power transmission networks with uh, over, overland cables going all over the country. Now, it turns out a lot of problems with the mass, actually, because where the two uh, cables meet in the insulator, there's a lot of heat building up sometimes. So when the heat builds up, sometimes it gets so hot, the cable melts and falls down. And when it falls down, 
you have uh, 450 kilovolt on Earth, if somebody's down there, is immediately dead. So therefore, the utilities, the transportation utilities, have the obligation of monitoring their electricity transportation lines all the time. It's a very expensive business. How do they do it today? With helicopters. So they fly with the helicopter all over the country with a heat camera, and they're actually you know, flying along all the lines and, and, and once a year, twice a year, and seeing what's the status of the, of the actual uh, junction, the, the joints of the cables. And uh, that is something which is very risky, extraordinarily risky, and nobody reports about it. So loads of deaths because these people fly under any weather conditions, you know, it's, it's foggy, it's rainy, going into the, the valleys, etc. So a lot of people die uh, doing this type of exercise. You know, there was recently the accident in London, so things come out on this, but this is kind of a daily routine. So people uh, now look into putting sensors into the actual mass, you know, machine-to-machine -machine type of systems to monitor real-time what's happening in the system. Another thing is the, uh, clearly the uh, distribution systems of the substations, you sometimes see it, so the cables the overland cables come into the substation, then they disappear. So that is a station which is down-converting the voltage. And you have, you have a lot of heat building up in the transformers there, potentially. Now, that's not a problem. The problem is if one of the transformers actually goes out of business because something is overheated, then it automatically puts a lot of strain on another transformer, maybe the one which is just beside, which, if it's just on the limit of the load, is also overheating, goes out of business. So the whole substation goes out of business. Suddenly, you know, you put a lot of strain on another substation if you're in peak time because it's uh, maybe air conditioning time or it's heating time of the, in the country. This other substation goes out of business. Suddenly you have a cascading effect of the whole city, the whole country going out of uh, electricity. This is what happened in the United States. So you have outages because of that. Often it's just a single transformer in a single substation which blew but because the whole system was on, really on the maximum load of what it could uh, tolerate, you know, one thing after the other went out of work. So if you have a real-time monitoring system in place, which could tell you, hey, there's heat building up, you could cater for that. You could slowly uh, distribute the load, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Then, of course, you know, you need sensors in the uh, in the buildings. So the how much electricity do you consume, etc. What is also becoming popular is not only the metering but the submetering. So the idea of submetering is you know how much electricity is consumed in every single socket. Okay, so you could charge me by the electricity I've been using for powering my my laptop. So these type of things are taken in, so you need a lot of machine-to-machine -machine type of solutions there. It's a lot of scope there, also putting the renewables in there and controlling that things don't go out of order. Um, and IEEE has been looking at that in the P2030 interoperability uh, document. And it's a very interesting document because it's the first time that it's marrying the uh, information, information technology community with the power community. So these are communities which speak very different languages, and suddenly they find them, themselves in, in this single doc document, P2030. <coughs> okay, so let me go on. So just to show you, I was in a substation here uh, looking at all these solutions here. So that is a sensor which is measuring the traffic, the power traffic flow, the power flow in the, in the cable. So it's, it's running completely autonomously. It's actually harvesting the electromagnetic energy which is, uh, which is generated by the cables and just, you know, just have it hanging there and it measures the flow. Okay, so let me conclude. Um, these conclusions, I think, were for different presentations. Never mind. So the, the actual machine-to-machine -machine is, you know, to really roll it out a large scale, you need this critical mass. And I think, you know, the, the Zigbee community has been around for 10 years, 15 years, and it has not scaled to the volumes of the actual, uh, you know, sales volume, node volumes we thought it would be, even though the technology was very beautiful. 
Um, instead, you know, technologies like uh, Wi-Fi and cellular have really taken off and they're kind of giving a ubiquitous coverage with very different properties, okay? But it's there. We have the systems, either Wi-Fi and or cellular. So therefore, you know, for the machine-to-machine -machine traffic uh, and systems, we don't need to reinvent ourselves. We don't need to build a new system with a new spectrum, with a new interface, with a new medium access control. Hey, no, let's use the systems which are out there, you know, which have already built their own community, uh, which have proven they can be around for longer than half a year, which is very important. That means they're going to be around probably for another 10, 15 years, and, uh, and just optimize them. So it's really down to optimization. It's optimizing the medium access control. It's optimizing the schedule algorithms to make sure you can have high data rate and low data rate traffic happening at the same time, et cetera, et cetera. And I think that will be a big challenge for the next years to come. And in fact, this marriage between ultra broadband and ultra scalable traffic uh, is something also the Horizon 2020 framework will look at. So that's something you know, which the Commission is also interested in because they understand there will not only be the 5G ultra broadband traffic coming in, but there will be really this low data rate stuff but large volume type of traffic coming in from the machine to machine networks, which gives a lot of challenges uh, from the access point of view, from the core internet point of view, from the data storage and processing and uh, interpretation point of view. Okay? So that's it really. Thanks. Thanks a lot. Maybe time for a quick question. Um, I, I'm not sure that I mean the start of is actually the, the best for minimizing interference or even to work as scaling effect as you were saying. Actually is the worst in, in, to, to, to that can cause this kind of, uh, of effects. And we we are saying okay, we give to each sensor a SIM card because the other system, the other way doesn't work. But I don't think this is a, a, a reason to, to justify this. Okay, so the the cascading thing was in a different context. Okay, it's a power yeah, thing. Sensors, yeah. One yeah. sensor here, then we have another sensor network here, and they are both interfering, right? You, you have just took one sensor network, and you took ten sensor networks in your reach one there, right? In your gap. So why why you need each sensor to communicate with the with the cell? They, they don't need to, to communicate with the cell, they are a sensor network, so maybe they just need one gateway there to communicate with the I'm, I'm not quite sure what you want to tell me, but I, I, what I understand is that you think a lot of traffic has to be done locally? Yeah, is what you mean? Meaning you're sensing something and you're actuating and you want something to be done locally? A decision to be taken locally? Yeah. Yeah, okay. Yeah, so this, this can be done. I agree with you. There will be stuff. It's not the major, majority of the market, but there will be. So that's why we looked uh, into the device-to-device -device communication, which I think is very important. And that's something which is really now of industrial interest also in 3GPP. So release 12 will work on device-to-device, -device, meaning you have actually you know, a direct communication between one machine and another. It could be a sensor and a sensor, sensor and actuator, whatever, you know. So you don't need to go anymore through the gateway and, and clutter the traffic. Having said this, though, the, the control is still done centrally, which I think brings you a lot of advantage from an interference point of view. But it doesn't clutter so much your, your interface, okay? So yeah, I agree with that. But from a, uh, in general, if you need it, really need to col collect large-scale data, and you need to down-propagate down large-scale data, my personal experience, really, because we have been bleeding this, is, uh, you know, multi-hop is just not a good solution. It's just, it's really, it's not. So if you need to get your data to the other side of the planet, 
do it with as little hops as possible, one hop, and for this cellular technology, Wi-Fi is, is just perfect, you know. Because we know how to handle interference, yeah, there will be interference, but I've shown you the graph, 100,000. We did it, this is not a high-level graph, this is a scheduling graph, okay, so we knew how to schedule these sensors. Of course, the moment you start uh, sensors having uh, uh, data to be transmitted once a second, things will change. I agree with that, okay? But if we're talking about low, low data rate gathering, like most of the machine-to-machine -machine, uh, traffic, then, then this is what I think is a good solution. Yeah. It really depends on the business, for example. If you're talking about a vending machine, then the supply they can be really as far yeah. all over the place. Yeah, exactly. And you can do it locally, from place to place. Yeah. So they have to singly, I mean, one by one standard. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I you know, we also we had a project now where we had to roll out, you know, I think three hundred, four hundred sensors in a very local space. And we wanted to use it to I don't want to say the name because you're filming me, but uh, we used a company who who had a fifteen dot four E chip, okay? It was, and it, we had to take data quite often, quite, quite, quite freaking data sampling, okay? And they, they, we, we managed to get up until 250 something sensors, and the 250 and first sensor just made the whole system collapse, okay? Maybe it's an engineering problem, I don't know. But it seems we're always hitting some fundamentals. Whereas, you know, the system we have running now, it's a cellular system, it's not the standardized cellular you're used to, it's a different type of cellular system. Uh, the company which we're using the chip from claims it can serve uh, up to a million nodes on a single base station. I have gone through the medium access control with them and all the radio resource management, so I've looked at that because I understand it, and it seems doable. And we run it in Moscow on a few thousand nodes and it's working, okay, so it's doable. Yeah. So again, so I think you know you, you get a lot of operational advantages. We pay for this because, of course, we pay for somebody setting up the infrastructure of of servicing us, etc. But look, they need to live from something as well. I mean, they're not. It's not for free of setting up a base station on the roof and powering the base station and maintaining the base station. So it comes at a price, but I think it's a price worth paying. I mean, if you want to do all the things from scratch. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Yes, exactly. Mm. Okay, um, Mr. Interest, I think there are more questions, but let's just take a moment.